Okay, so verse 1 begins and says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So the day of Pentecost, just so you're clear on this, the day of Pentecost is the observance of Pentecost, came 50 days after Passover was observed. 50 days, which Passover was observed on a Sabbath, a Saturday, which means Pentecost was actually on a Sunday. Because it came 50 days later. It was observed on a Sunday. It was known as the Feast of Weeks. But by the time the book of Acts was written, and that era was being played out, the Jews observed Pentecost as a remembrance of when they received the law of God at Sinai. Some some of the observances of why it was held, um, why the observance was made, had had shifted somewhat. And the main emphasis was upon receiving the law of God at Sinai. And this is significant. The Jews observed it as the giving of the law, Pentecost. Christians observe it as the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who actually enables us to live as Christian people. As Paul said in Romans 3, verse 31, Do we then make void the law, talking about the law of God, through faith? He said, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, we live as God's people. As he also said in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, he said, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And we see this throughout the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is the agent. He resides right within us who enables us to uphold the law of God and live as Christian men and women. So I think it's significant that Pentecost to the Jews was the giving of the law and to the Christian it's the giving of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the agent who enables us to live as Christian men and women. We cannot live for God without God. We cannot live for God through the energy of our own flesh. We are utterly dependent upon him. He is the vine. We are the branches. Every time it talks about living right according to God's law and word as Christian people, It's by Christ, with Christ, through Christ, in Christ. God wants it that way. And it's a goodness for us that it is that way. In verse 2, the scripture goes on and says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. Okay? Uh, That song by Keith Green, Rushing Wind. How many of you have ever heard that? You can go on YouTube, just put in Keith Green, Rushing Wind. You should listen to the song. It's powerful. About the Spirit's work in our lives. So here, suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The wind is representative or symbolic of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We know this is true. You can look, for example, in Ezekiel 37, remember there? The dry bones and the Spirit of God hovers over them and they come to life, right? We also have Jesus talking about it. In John chapter 3, verse 8 to Nicodemus, remember that? 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind is representative or symbolic of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. That's this rushing, that's what this rushing mighty wind is symbolic of. And verse 3 says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So there's like these tongues of fire above each of their heads. Okay, now that's an unusual occurrence. The fire is symbolic of the presence of God. The fire is symbolic of the presence of God. We know this from Scripture because we see it over and over again. You have what? The burning bush in Exodus 3 where God met with Moses. You have the pillar of fire by night that guided and kept the Israelites safe. Talked about in Exodus 13. You have the consuming fire on Sinai and all the people are like, oh, we don't want to meet with God anymore. (laughs) You know, you go do it, Moses. When the law was given in Exodus 24. So over and over again, we see the fire is representative or symbolic of the presence of God. So that's what's happening here. And they would get that. These Hebrews would totally get that. There's this wind. It's the Spirit. There's this fire. God's here. Understand? Huge, huge stuff. Verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 4 is representative of the fact that the Spirit is being poured out upon all flesh. Okay? This wind, I should say, and this fire, these tongues of fire, are representative of the fact that the Spirit is being poured out upon all flesh, and the Spirit is given to all those who believe in Christ. This was huge. John the Baptist spoke of this coming. Remember that? He said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew 3.11 Jesus spoke of the Spirit coming, the Helper, after he leaves. We also know historically that the Jews were waiting for this outpouring to take place. Writings during this era by the Jews about this impending outpouring of the Spirit are available to us historically today. And Peter is about to give the first sermon of the early church and say, this is that. This is that outpouring that you, <laughs> that everyone's expecting. When you look at the Old Testament, you see that the Spirit of God was seen only at work at certain times or instances and only upon certain people. Now in the New Testament, the Spirit is at work all the time everywhere, and upon all people who believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit is convicting men who don't know Christ of sin, righteousness, and judgment, pointing them to Christ. The Spirit of God has been outpoured. Make sure you read later today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about the importance of the Spirit and the era in which we now live, where this Spirit of God is poured out upon all flesh. 
And Peter's about to preach about it. Look at verses 5 through 13 and what it says there. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. So they heard the sound. That's what brought them in. They didn't necessarily see these little tongues of fire. But they heard this rushing, mighty wind. And were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So this rushing wind draws the crowd. And then here's these people speaking their language and their Galileans. Look what it goes on and says. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then Luke gives the list of just some of the nations represented in geographical areas represented. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Yeah, that would be freaky, right? You show up at a place, you know these people are Galileans, and yet they're speaking in a tongue that you understand. How is that possible? They're freaking out. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. So here we see the outpouring of the Spirit. And it's causing no small stir in Jerusalem. People gather. They're amazed. The usual mockers who were seen with Lot in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah way back then, And the usual mockers that we see in our day, here they were present in the Apostles' Day. Mockers have always been around. There's always been those who hate the proclamation of God. That's nothing new. And they're saying the disciples are drunk. And notice this initial sermon of the early church by Peter was attended by people from all over the world. People from all over. Because they were there from, they were there from all over. Why? Because of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three traveling feasts of the Jews. And proselytes to Judaism, both would travel to be a part of Pentecost. They would come to Jerusalem for it. This was God's providence. The gospel would begin immediately to spread to all the parts of the world. You know that these people from all these geographical areas, some hundreds and hundreds of miles away, were going to talk about that when they got back. The bizarrest thing happened. There was like this mighty rushing wind. It was crazy. And we run over to see what it is. And here's these Galileans talking in our language. And then here's what they taught us about this guy named Christ, Jesus. 
So in the providence of God, he pours out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, knowing that even at the very first sermon ever preached by the early church, the gospel would begin to be spread across the world, which is what God wants and what he intended. Amen? No doubt most of these from the various countries were Jews. The scholars I've read are all sure of that. And they have done a yeoman's job to show historical proof that Jews could be proven to be at most of the nations mentioned here. One contemporary historian that the scholars quoted, for example, estimated that there were one million Jews in Egypt during this time. So some of them came to Jerusalem. Not all of them come for the feast. But some of them obviously came. And Luke mentions them. Another example, Rome. Rome had at least seven synagogues at that time. Another city that they cite that's mentioned here, two of the five wards of the entire city were made up of Jews. But there were also proselytes, Gentiles who had been won to Judaism. Now, Gentile converts had to do three things to be full-blown considered full-blown part of the people of God. Number one, the males had to be circumcised. So, guess what? Many would not do that. They liked Judaism. Yeah, they wanted to be joined to the Israelites and the people of God, but they didn't want to be circumcised. Um, So there were more full-blown converts of females than there were males. We know that historically. These men were referred to as God-fearers. God-fearers. So one is, the males had to be circumcised, so that kept the numbers low. (laughs) Number two, they had to perform a self-baptism in the sight of witnesses. It's a symbol of purification. Washing off what you were in the past, accepting the new Judaism. And number three, they had to offer a sacrifice. You know, an animal sacrifice as the Jews were taught by the Lord to do. They, of course, these proselytes, had to meet in the court of the Gentiles when visiting the temple, something God never established. God did not establish that. God's desire in setting up Israel in a given location and making them his peculiar people was so all the other nations of the world would see them and be one to him. It has always been his desire to win all the peoples of the world to himself. The Jews have a tremendous history of always trying to fence themselves off from the peoples of the world, including gathering at the temple. Gathering at the temple. Oh, you're a Gentile? You're over here. You're not part of the inner core. (laughs) This is all going to change. You understand that? This is reformation, this is radical reformation in the minds of Hebrews. That any Jew accepted the gospel is stunning in and of itself. And you do understand the early church was almost exclusively made up of Jewish folk. One to Christ by the thousands. It has always been God's desire to win all the peoples of the world to himself. And we see there were some proselytes. But all the world would be turned on its head now. Radical 
Reformation. Now, rather than staying in a given location, his people were to go to all the peoples of the world and bring them the gospel. I know many churches, rather than go out, do gimmicks to try to get people to come in, come into their church building, but God has taught us, go to them. We're to go to them. Also, there was no longer one racial geographical people, namely Israel, but now his kingdom would be made up of all tribes and tongues from all the nations of the world. Understand? And much of Acts is about that transition. Three chapters in Acts are devoted fully to that transition. Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 15. But there's many other places where it's spoken of or alluded to. But those three chapters are devoted to the fact that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for all peoples. Which was a tough pill for even many of the Jewish believers in Christ to to swallow. Notice they knew the disciples were Galileans, right? They noticed the disciples were Galileans? How did they know that? They knew it because of their speech. Because they had an accent. Because the Hebrew they spoke was a little different, a little broken up, compared to those outside of Galilee. So that was readily recognized. So here's this Galilean with his accent, with his little different Hebrew speaking, and these people are hearing them speak in their language. Wild, right? Remember what happened to Peter? Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Let's look there. Matthew chapter 26. And verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again Peter denied with an oath, I do not know the man. Verse 73, And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. They knew that he was with Jesus of Galilee, that he was a Galilean because of his talk, because of his accent, because of his broken Hebrew. And that was my other point that I was going to make. The Galileans were looked upon as a rough, lowly people. An unlearned people is what they were looked upon as. So surely they did not know how to speak Egyptian, you know. Surely they did not know how to speak like a Roman, you know, or any of these things, all these countries listed, because they're unlearned, lowly, rough men. They're Galileans. And isn't it interesting that that's often who our Lord uses to accomplish his purposes in the earth? Are the lowly, the insignificant, I mean, Paul even spoke about this in Corinthians, right? How he didn't take many of you who are so smart or so noble or so wonderful. 
<laughs> but no, he, he took the dregs of society, the scum of the earth, and he transformed us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? You think about your own life, right? Think about it. I think about my own life. A little punk over in Detroit doing what punks do, you know, stealing cars, fighting other punks, you know, stealing stuff, dealing drugs, robbing people, burning places down, you know, the usual punk stuff. And God takes that guy, transforms him by the power, regenerates him by the power of his Holy Spirit, makes him a totally new creature, actually wants to read the Bible, actually wants to pray, actually wants to make God known to all the inhabitants of the earth. Amen? And then on top of all that, think about this, takes that scruffy little dude, has him uncover the Magdeburg Confession and write a book on the doctrine of the lesser magistrates and get to talk to people who think they're so important. You know? Isn't that just how God works? It's how he works. And you see it, it is humbling, and you see it over and over again throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New. That that's how God works. Absolutely amazing. Notice also that this situation where God's people speak in tongues here in Acts 2 is different than what is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Here, in Acts 2, the people understand what they are saying in their own language. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, when people speak in tongues, which is a gift from God, which I believe is still for today, people cannot understand what they are saying. So Paul had to tell the Corinthians not to speak in tongues if unbelievers join in with you, lest they think you're crazy. <laughs> they think you're mad. All right? So it's different here. Here, they actually understand them speaking in their own tongue. Now notice what happens here in verses 14 through 21. Let's read that of Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to end very quickly here. I don't have much left to say. It goes on and it says, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter stands up. He begins to preach. He's now full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the guy's been transformed at this point. He is now bold. Why was the Holy Spirit given? Why? To empower us to serve Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit was given to us. To empower us to serve Christ. 
We serve him in how we conduct our life. We serve him in the exploits that we do in the earth. Proclaiming him to men. This is huge. We are to serve him who died in our stead. He, the Spirit, glorifies Christ. We glorify Christ. The Spirit empowers us to glorify Christ. To make us bold. To make us bold. Culture, time, and the state of modern day Christianity can try to push that out of you. Remember when you were first saved, you wanted to tell everybody, didn't you? You might have felt a little weird about it. How do I do that? And then, of course, Christianity came along, American Christianity, and told you, oh, well, first you've got to establish a relationship, and it has to be at least two years before you can mention Jesus to someone. Otherwise, you have no right to tell them about Jesus. Stupid, unbiblical, moronic. That's crazy. So, the truth is, when you come to know Christ, you want to tell people. You may be scared to do it, but the Holy Spirit makes you bold so that you do it. You don't need to know all the answers to all the theological questions. Your testimony of how you came to know Christ is one of the most compelling things you can ever talk to another person about regarding Jesus. Your own testimony. What you were, what he made you. How you used to think, how you think now. The work that he's done in your life, your witness of his work in your life is the, and anyone can do that because it's your story. Understand? Now, as you go along, you should learn the theological arguments. You should become orthodox in your thinking. And you should be able to defend the faith. Understand that. But you don't have to know all the answers to tell someone about you. You don't have to be Ravi Zacharias, okay? If I could just hang out with Ravi all day, ooh, then I'd tell people about Jesus, you know? Okay, well, forget about that fantasy because guess what? You're never going to hang out with Ravi, okay? And Christ calls upon you to be a witness, amen? And every day that you don't do it is another day that's gone by that you probably feel bad that you didn't tell anyone about Christ, that you had opportunity to talk to someone and you blew past them because like Martha, you were so busy with all your stuff. Ever had that time where God arrests your heart to talk to someone, you don't do it, you miss the window, and the only thing you're left with at that point, and I've done it, the only thing you're left with at that point is to cry out to God, please, Lord, bring another Christian his way who's more faithful than I was. Please, Lord, to point him to your son. That's all you're left with. Better to do it. Better to do it. You should be lit-dropping machines. Everywhere you go, you should have literature with you. You're dropping literature. You don't have to have a conversation with everybody. You're busy. I get that. You leave a piece of literature. You have no idea how God's going to use that piece of literature in the heart and mind of the person who picks it up. Hugely important. They may contact you. I've had them contact me. So important to do. The Holy Spirit was outpoured to empower us for service to Christ, to live as Christian people, to glorify him in the earth. Notice Peter dismisses the mockers by pointing out that it is too early for anyone to have drunk enough to be drunk. And then he moves on to what really matters. And next week we will look more fully at the first sermon 
But notice what Peter begins with in his sermon, our last verses for this sermon. He quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. That's the verses here, verse 17 through 21. That is a quote from Joel chapter 28, verse 32, where the Lord says he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And Peter says in verse 16 here in chapter 2, he says, but this is what, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. When it says here, but this is what, a much better way to say what Peter said, or to say it more plainly in the ears of the hearers, this is what they were hearing. This is that. This is that. And then he goes on to quote Joel. That outpouring of the Spirit that even some have been talking about around here in Jerusalem that's impending, this is that. That's what this is. Nobody's drunk here. Verse 17, he begins the quote and he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And so many um, say that is the only emphasis. Verse 18 about the spirit being outpoured and blah, blah, blah. And the rest of what he quotes from Joel doesn't really matter. He only put in verses 19 and 20 because he wanted to include verse 21. Okay, so let's think about this. The last days, right? The last days of what should be the first question that comes to your mind. Now, it doesn't come to a lot of people's minds because American Christianity has made it popular to believe that the last days is talking about the last days and we're in the last days. That's what people tell us. Because all the prophecy charts that they've created which keep getting recreated ever since I was knee-high to a bull weevil in Christianity for the last 40 years. You know, they keep getting recreated, these prophecy charts. I listened to a guy um, while me and Claire were driving yesterday. I was just beside myself listening to him talk about this, giving this great fantasy to people regarding this eschatology that they've created. And it changes, and it changes, and it changes with the geopolitical situation And yet again, here's this guy changing it again. Grievous to watch. Some say the last days just before the rapture. Some say the last days just before Christ returns. Either way. That's what they say. I disagree. I say the references to the last days of the old covenant. The time from Christ's inner Incarnation till 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. That temple never will be rebuilt. Since I was knee-high to a bull wheel in Christ, I've heard people tell me they have the cows. They have the cows. They have the list of all the priests. You know, even though there is none, there is no way to know whoever was part of the priests. They have the, the they have the timbers for the temple. They have an agreement with this one area, you know, that they can they can build it. I've listened to that for 40 years. Oh, and the premillers said, you're one of the mockers Peter talked about. <laughs> no, I'm not one of the mockers Peter talked about. I'm the same person pointing out that your exegesis sucks. That's what I am. 
Plain and simple. Okay, so the temple never will be rebuilt. Animal sacrifices never will take place, as some falsely teach. These are the last days referenced, the last days of the Old Testament covenant. That's what's being spoken of here. Look at the book of Hebrews, if you will. It's a place other than here in Peter and uh, where the last days are mentioned. And the other places in Timothy. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The writer of the Hebrews says in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Did you catch that? In these last days. What would be the last days they're thinking of? What's this whole book about? The Old Covenant. The Old Covenant sacrificial system. That's what the whole book is about. The last days is a reference to the end of the Old Testament covenant. A new covenant is here. And the writer of Hebrews talks about it. Talks about the distinction between the two. The radical reformation between the two. And yet the continuity between the two. As those things in the temple were pictures of the coming Christ. Remember what the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 8? So here he is talking about the last days. And in chapter 8, verse 13, he says, In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete, which was what? The Old Testament covenant. And growing old is ready to vanish away. The temple was still built at this time. It was still up. 70 A.D. hadn't come yet. The Romans hadn't leveled it. And that is why he says, that which is obsolete is ready to vanish. These are the last days of the Old Testament covenant. That's what the last days is about. And look what will happen. Look at the rest of the verses. Verses um, 19 and 20 of Acts chapter 2. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Okay? Some premillennialists say that this has not happened yet. Others say it did happen. Some premillennialists say this hasn't happened yet, verses 19 and 20. Others say it has happened. Those who say it has not happened think it will take place after the rapture. So it's still in the future. Those who say it has happened say it happened on the day of Christ's death. Remember, like the sun was darkened, people came out of their graves, temple was torn to, a bunch of crazy wild stuff happened, right? So some premillennials say it has happened and they point to the resurrection. Others say it hasn't happened and they point to the fact that the rapture hasn't taken place and all that will happen then. They are looking for some literal physical occurrence and this is a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding of apocalyptic judgment language employed by the prophets over and over again, including Joel. 
It is meant symbolically, and I address this in my sermons on Revelation over and over and over again. And you can listen to my sermons on Revelation online. And yes, what is spoken of here occurred in the run-up to 70 A.D. And I go over it all in my sermons there. Verse 21 is the last thing that Peter quotes from Joel, and it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's that word, whoever. Jesus had already used that, right? In John chapter 3.16, right? Whoever believes in the name of the Lord. Showing, trying, here's a little glimpse. It's not just for you guys, the Jews. This thing's for everybody. (laughs) And such a huge important thing this was, again, chapter 10, 11, and 15 had to deal specifically entirely with that transition. And then there are many places within the book of Acts where you see it addressed or alluded to. Here it is alluded to, right here at the very beginning. Right here at the very beginning, where Peter, in the very first sermon of the early church, is quoting Joel, and it says, whoever calls on, not whichever Jewish guy or gal, right? It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So even here we see that drumbeat begin. The major transition from a geographical, racial people to all peoples. From any tribe, nation, or tongue becoming the people of God. Namely, all those who repent and believe in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Amen? Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.